Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to the 22nd episode of Encountering the Trinity. I'm your host, Steve Nichols, and joining me as always is Father Phil. Father Phil, how are you doing this morning? Good morning, Steve. It's great to have another opportunity here, especially in the Easter season, to talk about the light of Christ. So looking forward to today's session. Yeah, absolutely. Well, do you mind opening us out this morning with a prayer? Let's do that. Yeah. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we enter into this season of light with hearts rejoicing in the mystery of your resurrection, looking forward to Mercy Sunday, as well as the advent of of your Holy Spirit descending at Pentecost, and then the glorious Feast of your Ascension. Grant us the graces we need to be illumined by that same Holy Spirit as we seek to reflect on the mystery of your word, and especially the mystery of your mercy, which is of a piece with your resurrection. You are the resurrection and the life, and you are the divine mercy. So in you, those titles are synonymous, which is the glory of your Father. Grant us the gifts of your Holy Spirit, especially of knowledge, understanding, wisdom, that we can have and explore your word in this podcast. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, who lives and reigns with you, Father, in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, it is the octave of Easter, and Divine Mercy Sunday is almost upon us, Father Phil. And I just would like to read, I guess, at the outset of our podcast, two scriptures. And the first is Hosea 6.6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings. And then the second scripture I'd like to bring up is James twelve thirteen, the last part of that, where he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And one thing I'd like to just say at the outset, Father Phil, I think you can attest to this just as much as I can, is that mercy is, at least for us in our fallen state, um, even though we've entered into Christ through the mysteries, um, is still quite a challenge. There's nothing, um, I think, my the, the fallen part of me, the, the side that's still broken, would rather have than, than judgment and justice done. And yes, God, take them out, wipe them out, all of them, and let's uh, do away with that. And, and yet there's this still quiet voice that says mercy, this whisper of the Holy Spirit that says, forgive, and it can be just so um, infuriating at times, the fact that God wants me to show mercy, and I, but I don't, and, and what's going on here, and um, I just think it's such an awesome thing that our Lord shows us on the cross, that this, this is mercy right here, Steve, this, this is this is what it is. Even even to death, um, you need to lay your life down for your brothers and sisters and forgive. And um, just wondering if we could talk a little bit today about mercy and um, just the beauty of what we're celebrating this Sunday in the Latin Rite. 
Yeah, Divine Mercy Sunday, um, you know, is a relatively new feast uh, in the Western Catholic Church. And, um, you know, it was St. Faustina, now St. Faustina, Blessed Faustina. I think she was canonized by John Paul II, one of her her own native land being the same as his, the great land of Poland, that bastion of Western Catholicism that's right on the verge of the East as well. And, you know, Steve, the Eastern Church, as we were talking about prior to the podcast, has such a a different, more light-filled, resurrection-oriented view of the Trinity as well as the purpose of the Incarnation than the one that uh, we have um, absorbed and assimilated in the West here. And I think the, uh, the, the struggle that you mentioned in the minds of many Latin Catholics between the mercy of God and the justice of God, together with the multiple, multiple theories of atonement and pious, in my view, pious piffle that you hear <laughs> from even uh, learned devout theologians on places like EWTN trying to work out a divine calculus about God's mercy and God's justice uh, are in large part a function of the atonement theories of the uh, propitiation of guilt that the incarnation and especially the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross presumably resolved. And while I'm caricaturing this, obviously, and, and, and poking fun at it at one level, and even though there is a certain truth uh, in it, even for the early church fathers, the entire patristic tradition and the tradition in the East today uh, has n- never, never for a minute has suffered with the, the, the dilemma, as you stated it earlier, and as, as many of us have wondered about, how can God be merciful and just at the same time? And basically, when you think of God or, or the divine economy in those terms, guilt-based, guilt-ridden, and atonement-oriented, um, you're thinking of it in largely a juridical or legalistic forensic model. And then theories get trotted out, which have been ever since the Middle Ages, um, trying to resolve the dilemma. And none of them, in my view, are very satisfactory, though, though there are very pious people whose spiritual lives are nurtured by that. I, I think the whole, <laughs> in my view, I'll talk a minute about the East, how they see it and, and how the light from the East can shed some light on us for Divine Mercy Sunday as we move closer towards it. And I think Faustina in her own spirit picked up something of the Eastern light on this uh, mystery of God's mercy and God's justice. But even before Faustina, I think, Steve, uh, the little flower, uh, in one short Mm, sentence, put to rest all the struggles, the intellectual struggles and spiritual struggles (laughs) that Latin Catholics have labored under and continue to labor under. It's, It's a great, the greatest suffering for me on Good Friday is to see well intentioned Catholics still carrying the artificial cross of uh, false atonement theories <laughs> and, and buried under individualized guilt that actually obscures them from the mercy of Christ that was flowing freely on the cross, not as kind of a stoic expiation of a presumed angry father in heaven, but for something that's something far more mysteriously beautiful than than um, 
theories of atonement can capture, but but let's not go down that dark and dreary road here in this podcast. <laughs> the the little flower said, um, they said, aren't you afraid of, because she talked so much about God's lifting her up. She compared getting into the arms of the Father, the merciful Father, as being on an elevator or a, a lift, as they called it in England, um, and being taken straight up without walking a step on her own. You know, the theory of she was a victim, but she was a victim to divine mercy, not to divine justice. Um, she had not; she didn't have a masochistic bone in her body, which is actually what a, what a lot of Catholic theology is. Uh, you know, a lot of masochism is disguised as Catholic uh, uh, atonement theology. But in any event, the little flowers said they ask her, "Aren't you afraid? You 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 emphasize." God's mercy so much. Aren't you also afraid of his justice? She says, absolutely not. She said, his justice is his mercy. Yeah, he cannot exactly. he, he cannot not be merciful. And let me uh, say, even from a Western Catholic standpoint, certainly from a biblical standpoint, uh, certainly from a Pauline standpoint, where most of these atonement theories on uh, whether it's the, the kind of uh, justification theory that involves reparation for sins through penitential practices in the Catholic Church or the imputed righteousness and those theories of atonement that got uh, reworked and, and, and re, re, reconfigured by Calvin and Luther, they all of them deal with the biblical concept of justice or justification. And similarly, they all misunderstand the biblical meaning of justification. And let me just say a word about that, and then we'll we'll move on to to what the divine mercy actually is, and the and the reason why Therese, without knowing what I'm about to say, um, it was her intuition of this that allowed her to say that God's mercy and God's justice are synonymous. Um, and even while I say that, I, I'm so aware from my own theological studies of the concocted and convoluted theories of God's mercy and justice trying to work this out into a scholastic calculus. It's just, I mean, I, I'm still detoxing from that kind of thinking myself, and it's 40 years later, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I, I, oh my, forgive me, I, you know, I'll go to confession this weekend to, to, to confess being a little harsher than I need to be on these systems, but that's just what they are. Balthazar threw them off, Benedict threw them off. I could quote you a hundred passages from Pope Emeritus Benedict, where he says, uh, you know, the theories of atonement are perfectly neat and totally wrong. Um, <laughs> but, but, but withstanding that for a minute, let's, let, me, let me say a word. This was an enormous revelation to me, and it allowed me to see St. Paul as the apostle of divine mercy for the first time in my life. And this took place about, oh, I, probably 10, 10 to 12 years ago now. I never read Paul because I associated him with these theories of atonement, both Catholic and Protestant, that seemed absolutely nonsensical to me and still do um, from every conceivable standpoint, historical, theological, spiritual, emotional, psychological, etc. But uh, I read an article by a Protestant, actually, in the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible on, on God's justice and justification. And he said that righteousness, and in Hebrew, and I, I'm not a linguistic scholar, I know neither Hebrew nor Greek, 
But both in Greek and in Hebrew, the words for justice and righteousness are fairly synonymous. And a phrase that I have now begun to use in my attempts to both teach about this and preach about this is that righteousness is the, is the English translation of the Hebrew and Greek words that convey this sense, being in right relationship with God. Okay, and when we talk about justice, God's justice or man's justification, what that means is being in right relationship, that is to say, being true and faithful to the portions of the covenant, the relationship between man and God that each of the parties have committed to. You know, there's that curious line from, I think it's the second letter of Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, that if we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. And that does not mean that, as many Catholics and Christians interpret it to mean, that God remains benevolent in spite of himself. (laughs) (laughs) It means that God remains true to his own nature, which Mm -hmm. is the nature he revealed to Abraham. I will make you abundant, more abundant than the stars of the sky. God's very nature is to be in excess with his mercy, with his love, with his creative initiative. He cannot not do it. God can no no sooner not be merciful and not create in abundance and in excess. Whatever he does is in excess. He cannot not do that any more than water cannot not run downhill. It's his very nature. And so faithfulness in the life of God is to be true to his own nature. And he cannot not do it. And so his fidelity to the covenant, his righteousness consists in him keeping the promises that he made to Abraham, regardless of how the descendants of Abraham behave. So his, his justice is the excess of his love. It's absolutely identical in him. There is no darkness in God. There is no non-love in God. There is no, no, there is no non-forgiveness in God. It just simply doesn't exist. And so his righteousness consists in him simply being himself, which he cannot not be by definition. Yeah, it was, as you were saying all that, I got this mental image of... Um, mercy and justice in the sense that it, mercy is something that um, if you think about what it is, if if it's going to be um, full and true, has no limit. Whereas judgment presupposes limits. And with God, there are no limits. So I'm just thinking even from a, I guess, a philosophical point of view right here that, that God, the reason, and in one simple way of looking at it, no, this is very uh, a very um, maybe a really bad analogy, but I'm just thinking, you know, mercy. Maybe that's one reason why God is just utter, pure, gratuitous mercy is because he he has no limits, and it is who he is. And if he was a God of judgment, um, that would mean that he. He has limits, and that in the sense that uh, he's he's limited in certain areas. Because well, I can't go beyond that because, you know, you've offended me so much, and I, I can only handle so much of it. And it almost like be being giving uh, uh, human attributes to uh, you know a divine person. 
Yes. One could catch a glimpse of the point you're making by saying something like this. While it's quite conceivable and it was a new development in the church and seems appropriate to the people of God to have a feast called the Divine Mercy, it's probably inconceivable to the people of God, even though it could make a certain abstract sense. <laughs> I don't think uh, you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, we, we wouldn't have, I don't think the church would ever seriously consider having a feast of divine justice. <laughs> or divine judgment. <laughs> right, divine judgment. And, and, and so, so it raises the question that you, that you raised in a scholastic, uh, in a scholastic yeah. key. You said, well, and, and this is a legitimate question, uh, you know, separating a out from the ugliness of the atonement theories, it is a legitimate question to ask that if what Father Phil and Steve are saying is true, that God, God's own justice is his fidelity to his own nature, which he cannot not be. It is the fact that justice for us or righteousness for us is being, again, it's not a, justice is not a quality. Justice is a form of disposition Either I'm properly aligned to God or I'm not properly aligned to God. I'm just, Joseph was a just man, meaning he was in right alignment with God. The Jews tended to defend, define that as being faithful to the law. Right. And the law, yeah. were the, guideline, the law was a set of guidelines showing you how to remain in proper relation, in right relationship to God as the covenant was revealed to them. And so when I'm in right alignment with God, and 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 St. Paul had the revelation that to be right in to be in right alignment with God is to be in union with Christ rather than in to follow a set of instructions, and that was revealed to him. But regardless whether it's righteousness in Christ or righteousness according to the law, righteousness and justice, a person is regarded as just when they are in proper alignment with God, meaning they are so disposed that the life of God, which is his mercy, is capable of flowing through them like electric current through a light because the connection is made properly. And that allows Israel, if they are properly aligned with God, to have the light of God flow through them because of the proper alignment. God cannot not be properly aligned, but men and women can. And so if I'm not properly aligned, instead of being filled with the light and mercy of God, the light goes out and I am empty and dark and dank and cold hearted. And so when you start to think of uh, theosis or salvation or healing or divinization as our being in right relationship with God and God's mercy illumining, transfiguring and transforming us such that as it was always hoped for Israel, we would become a light unto the nations and that the church will be a city set on top of a hill glowing with the deifying light of the Trinity. When you think of it that way, then justice is simply and righteousness is a matter of coming into right alignment with God. Just as we would say, this, this has helped me understand the concept of justice as I'm trying to articulate it here. Uh, we talk about, you know, we, when we think of people being justified, we immediately slip almost immediately into an atonement theory of some sort or another. But if you think of the best way to get a model for what the Bible means by justification is to think of the phrase we use when we talk about the margins on a typewriter or a computer being justified. You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. You yep. can justify the sheet, which means you take it from being an uneven sheet and it, it spreads itself out to both margins in a perfect proportion. That means that means to be to be justified means to be properly aligned. So if you can take that computer image and apply that to our life in God, it means that we're not doing anything other than those behaviors and adopting no other attitudes and making no other moves outside of the lines that allow us to be properly aligned with God such that his divine life can flow ever more excessively into us and then we become many incarnations of his own incarnate mercy. Yeah, absolutely. Now, how do people go to hell? They go to hell not because there's another quality in God other than his mercy called justice, but it's because people are not just, meaning they are not justified, meaning they are not in right relationship with God, meaning they are not properly aligned to the Trinitarian life such that the eternal life, which is simply knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent through the power of the Holy Spirit, that source is always flowing out into the world as a river of divine mercy. But if I'm not properly aligned to it, I am dead as a doornail, and I am already living in hell before I experience whatever extension of that faith fate happens to await me beyond the grave. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I think the, the first part of James uh, 2, or the, the verse right before 2.13 uh, it says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And I think that kind of sums that up perfectly, because our our refusal to to accept God's mercy is what would condemn us, and yes. and and really the that refusal ultimately I think the the other side of that coin because I think it's um, it has two sides to it. The one is is refusing to accept it, but the other is to re- refuse to give it um, because the the both um, you know it's it's really one and the same. And, yeah, that's right. And, and in, uh, the terms, in the terms I was using, either one of them moves me out of proper relationship with the Trinity and there leaves, leaves me eternally dead. It leaves me dead. And that deadness could continue on for eternity if I don't find a way through God's grace of getting back into proper alignment with him. Yeah, and, and it, you were speaking earlier about the atonement um, and, and whatnot. And um, I, I know last week we went into a little bit of depth of um, the, you know, Good Friday and whatnot. But um, the scripture, Hosea 6, 6, that I um, opened up things with, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And one thing I've been thinking about this week, Father Phil, is, I mean, I was I was raised in the Protestant tradition, um, both Baptist and Evangelical and then Reformed, um, the reformed of my own choosing, needless to say, but uh, before I became Catholic, but um, and then even when becoming Catholic, like you say, the predominant view in the West is one of um, uh, atonement. You know, uh, um, where the cross is looked at as more of um, God needing to to take out uh, His anger and wrath upon His Son, who was in our place, um, because He just needed to. You know, He needed to 
to really smash all those, you know, all the all the sins that have ever been committed. And he just he was so angry and and ticked off that he had to he had to he had to get his, you know, somehow. And um, it was either going to be us or Jesus. And um, uh, one thing I, I and, and then all of the verses that I'm thinking of that people would use to say, see, see, this is this is right. Um, for example, the the lamb that was slain uh, that the uh, during the Passover and uh, a lot of other different images are brought up. But the one thing that I'm noticing when I look back at all that stuff is is that what's what's happening, at least what I see, is that there's this lack on the part of humanity to be able to offer anything to God because of the simple fact that they just don't get it. <laughs> we don't get it. You know, God wants mercy, not sacrifice. And so that's why he always provides something um, previous to Jesus, um, his only begotten son, because he's, he's saying, I will provide, I will provide, I will provide. And then in the, the, um, the, the culmination of, of, um, of all of that is when he does send his only begotten and he does provide, but his provision is one of mercy. He's, it's like, he's trying to say the whole time is it's a, a sacrifice you getting, yours you know you you being able to say ha see this guy did this and so we get to do that to him now and now we feel good about ourselves and uh, he's like that's not that's not what i ever wanted i i it's it's to show mercy and and so um i don't know if you're getting where i'm trying to go with this but there's a, a very different picture that is painted in eastern uh catholicism you know the eastern churches than what has developed in the West, um, and and subsequently because of what developed in the West, basically that's one of the reasons I believe why the Reformation even happened because they were, um, you know, because of that fall, I guess you could say, or or, or skewed view of some of these different uh, doctrines. Um, that's that's potentially at least one of the reasons why that even happened in the first place. Yeah, giving the Reformation the patristic benefit of the doubt, um, you know, they really, they were so sick and tired, as were many Catholics, of the scholasticization of the uh, biblical faith. And and they felt like, you know, many layers of uh, scholastic varnish had been placed over uh, the authentic historic Christianity and had was be, were becoming an impediment, theologically an impediment to real contact with the risen Christ. Now, I'm really giving them the benefit of the doubt here, but, you know, they called it the Reformation because they, they, in their best instincts, were trying to return, as de Lubach and Balthazar and Benedict have been do, doing, and the whole purpose of Vatican II was to return to the sources, to get beneath the overlayers of, of, of Latin scholastic theology, to return to the tradition of the divine mercy and the communion with Christ that the East has never lost, but the early church was the fountainhead for. So yes, I think you're exactly right, Steve. That was the intent of the reformers. However, they had already been so co-opted by what a Lutheran theologian himself calls the introspective conscience of the West. Exactly. They had been so co-opted already by by a kind of individualized, guilt-ridden, juridical 
model of how to relate to God because of centuries, basically starting right after Aquinas, people date the uh, kind of the corruption of high medieval scholasticism around the 13th, 14th century, perhaps. I mean, you can enter those debates forever. The point is that Vatican II, uh, and you can see it in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, was trying to put us back in touch with the wellspring of worship and the real definition of quote-unquote sacrifice that is several levels up from the kind of sadistic bloodletting propitiation that we'd come to believe it to be. And, you know, sacrifice, as Thomas Merton says so beautifully in one of his books, in theory, has absolutely nothing to do with suffering or pain. The sacrifice of the Bible is the the primary, the, the pinnacle sacrifice of the Bible is the sacrifice of praise. Exactly. And, the and, the, and, and, and it's the son who is the praise of the father. The great Carmelite mystic Elizabeth of the Trinity said, my desire in life is to be the praise of his glory. The sacrifice acceptable to the Lord is that of thanksgiving, a contrite heart saying, I have nothing to offer to you. Uh, I deserve nothing from you. Everything is a gift. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church itself so beautifully says, right in paragraph 1077, I believe it is, right at the start of that section on the liturgy. The liturgy is the work of the Most Holy Trinity. It's a sacrifice of praise offered to the Father by the Son in which he allows us to participate and draws us up into. The real sacrifices that we have to offer to God are not our penitential practices during Lent, but we're more like children to whom the mother gives a present and says, present this to your father on his birthday. (laughs) You know, the, the gift is given to us. Christ hands us the Eucharist, which is his very own self, and says, here, present this to your father and your and your sacrifice will be acceptable. Not because the father looks on the son's pain and suffering and then his heart is turned from stone to warmth, but because the father looks on the son's offering, which is the offering of faithful obedience, even in a world where people don't want mercy and so they put it to death. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and I love the, the image. Um, I guess when I um, think of even the, the Passover lamb, and that image from the Old Testament where that lamb had to be, you know, it had to be an unblemished lamb and it had to be slain. The blood had to be put on the doorposts and then the lamb had to be consumed. And the the, the image that I get when I look back at that, um, instead of looking at it as, well, this this lamb had to be killed in, in my place, otherwise I'd be killed, is... Right is I see instead the image of God saying, look, this, this is what mercy is, is this, this lamb is, is going to represent what I wish you could do <laughs> because, and because you are, in, are, you know, almost in a sense incapable of it or, or not, not so, maybe not so much, but, but basically this is what mercy is, is that I lay down my life for you. I hold nothing back. It's total, complete, free surrender that I love you to, even to death, you know, that whatever it costs me, like you were saying last week, that a mother would gladly, and I as a father would gladly give my life for my children. It would not, I would even hesitate. It's not even, 
I, I would. There, there's never a no in that. It's always yes, absolutely. If that's what it takes, no problem. And then even in my daily life, laying my life down for my kids, giving them all that I have, you know, all of my love, attention, affection, everything that I can do to help them become themselves, you know, and, and to, uh, and to grow and to, and to be healed in their own lives. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, I see in that lamb and, um, the same thing that I see on the cross, not God needing to get his, but instead, this is what mercy is. Mercy, mercy is n- not holding back. It's, it's giving, it's, it's, I forgive you seven times 70, you know, it's, it's, um, it's limitless, and that's what I see. I don't see, um, you know, what what others have read into it. Unfortunately, like you, you know, we've been saying, um, and I think it's that that renewed image, that uh, light uh, of the east rising in the west, uh, that will ultimately, I think, not only restore the glory of the Latin rite um, to its fullness, um, but also, I think. Even with um, our Protestant friends, um, I think it will uh, bring a lot of them back into communion with us. Yes, uh, even you're absolutely right. And, and um, if I can just rephrase briefly what what you just said so well yourself, uh, until you know, if you take if you take the image of the Lamb who was slain as pictured there in Revelation five and three and other in twenty, I think. And then the image of Christ crucified. Um, until we learn how to apprehend and behold those images as icons, rather than as um, as photographs, uh, we won't be able to get in touch with them as icons of the divine mercy. Because even to this day, it's almost impossible, in my experience, for a Western Christian to not subconsciously or consciously imagine the father as the slayer of the lamb who is slain. And once that happens, uh, the entire project of God's mercy is essentially uh, undermined. What has to be seen instead is that those icons are an image of the excess, the openness, the, the forth flowing of what uh, one Eastern Catholic bishop calls the wellspring of worship, the divine liturgy of the river flowing out from under the throne of the Lamb in the kingdom, which is the Holy Spirit and the uh, entire abundance of God's grace. Um, And the the portals on the hands of Jesus, his five wounds, especially the blood and the water flowing from his side, are icons of the uh, mercy of God, which is uncontainable in the body of God. Uh, St. Faustina, whose feast we celebrate today, the, the, the crucifixion was necessary from an Eastern standpoint, and especially from the standpoint of St. Faustina, who received these revelations from Christ. The crucifixion was necessary because the, body, the very body of Jesus, the incarnate body of Jesus, containing within it all the deifying infinite glory and love of God was more uncontainable in the historic Jesus. And I'm really paraphrasing Faustina here, but this is my reading of her. And I'll give you a direct quote from her in a minute to substantiate what I'm about to say, one of hundreds in her diary. Um, But in my words, 
the divine mercy of God, the by by which we would say, Steve, in our podcast, because of our emphasis on encountering the Trinity, the deifying eternal life of the triune God was instantiated in every cell of Jesus' body. Such, and, and because it's infinite and because it's excessive and because it, in a certain sense, is always amplifying itself in exponential multiplication, it needed to burst forth into the world. And so the cross was necessary or the cross was chosen in divine providence together with the scourging so that a million different portals could be opened in the body of the Lamb so that the excess of mercy intended from all eternity to flow forth from the throne of God in heaven upon a world fallen, empty, and dead could burst forth as the blood and water did from his side, gushing, as Faustina puts it, down upon a world. And the only people who go to hell are those who refuse to receive what's being poured forth from the throne of the Lamb who was slain. Once you begin to look at those images in, in, in the way as an outlet for the divine mercy. Everything changes, and we move far down the river, thank you, God, from the theories that have pent up the mercy of God and sealed it up in an atoning victim on the cross to propitiate God's justice. Here's the quote from Faustina. I mean, it's something similar to this. I'm, I'm recording in my car right now, so I don't have a, the copy right with me. But she says, Jesus says this to her. My heart is burning with the flames of my divine mercy. And my greatest suffering is that I have nobody to release them upon except apostles like you, dear Faustina. And, you know, he says that many, many times. That's where the image of the mother needing to express her milk always comes to mind to me. Uh, the very love needs an outlet. And, 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 and I want to finish my remarks for this podcast by hearkening back to a quote that I may or may not have given on this podcast before. But it has become kind of the Rosetta Stone for me, Steve, of trying to stay in touch with this theophanic vision of the triune mercy driving everything and 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 driving our theology as well, uh, totally overwhelming and uh, drowning the, the 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 categories of scholastic thinking, and Irenaeus says this: since the one who has mercy, he uses the phrase since the one who saves Jesus, but I'm going to change it in light of the Sunday to the one who had since the one who is mercy already existed from all eternity in the Trinity it was necessary that those who stand in need of mercy should be created so that the one who is mercy would have someone to be merciful to You know, the exact quote from Irenaeus is, since the one who saves already existed, it was necessary that those who would need to be saved should be created, that the one who saves should not exist in vain. It is my firm conviction that if the vision that enabled Irenaeus and many other church fathers to think of the priority of God's mercy in that way, and even our sinfulness, as the little flower and Faustina said, actually permitted and perhaps even created in the way we are by God, 
so that we, in our own sinfulness, would be outlets for his divine mercy. Once that vision begins to catch hold of us, we'll never be afraid, even in our sinfulness, to approach the throne of God. And we'll realize that um, even our injustice can redound to his greater honor and glory by furnishing him with an opportunity to unleash his pent-up divine mercy, which is his very nature and his own self-same righteousness. Amen. And I would just like to finish by saying, quoting James twelve thirteen, there, mercy triumphs over judgment. Our Lord triumphs over the evil one is another way of reading that. And um, Hallelujah. Yes, hallelujah. <laughs> um, for our listeners, we can be found at EncounteringTheTrinity.com and uh, from there you can find links to our Twitter feed, our Facebook account. Um, also, we can be found on iTunes. Perhaps that's how you're listening to us today. If not, uh, maybe you're listening on the, the website itself and you're thinking, oh man, if only these guys were in iTunes so I could listen on my iPod or iPhone. Well, you're in luck. Uh, believe it or not, we are on iTunes. And so... Um, uh, you can subscribe to us there and you can find us at Encountering the Trinity on iTunes. And if you don't mind, if you're listening today, um, and you, you are on the iTunes store by chance, if you don't mind giving us a rating, um, or leaving a comment, uh, sending us an email as well. We'd love to answer any questions or comments that you might have for Father Phil or myself. And, uh, Father Phil, do you mind closing us out with a prayer today? Uh, no, absolutely not. Um, as always, you know, my favorite prayer, often to begin or end a podcast, is the great doxology, you know, the hymn of the cherubim and seraphim, Glory Be. Shall we say that? Glory, Glory be, be to, to the Father, Father, and to the Son, the Son and, and to, to the Holy, Holy Spirit, Spirit, as it was in the beginning, beginning is now, now, and ever, and shall, ever be. shall be, world without end. Amen. Alleluia. Alleluia.